I thought I would, uh, I would talk today about uh, the refuges because we sort of ritually acknowledge them a lot. I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dharma, I take refuge in the Sangha. And we, we reference them a lot and sometimes we reference them in Pali. But I, in my experience, there hasn't, there's not a, a whole lot of discussion about them. And I, you know, we, we have a ritual, ritualized relationship to them. But I'd like to um, do a little bit of, of uh, thinking about them today and, and just see what, what we mean by refuge and Buddha and Dharma and Sangha. And, and we've got to start with what do we mean by refuge and refuge from what? We sort of have a, a, a vague kind of notion. Um, most of us come to meditation practice anyway f with a sense of uh, we're looking for something, maybe some relief. And so we may have a generalized kind of sense of what we're looking for relief from, but it, it's not usually articulated. Bruce Springsteen's, remember um, Bruce Springsteen's song, um, The Whole World is Out There Just Trying to Score, I've Seen Enough, Don't Want to See Any More, Cover Me. Mm -hmm. um, and he, his refuge would be in that song, in his lover. Um, But there are, there are other, other refuges, and refuges from what? Well, it's, it's interesting, the Buddha actually um, has a list. It's the list of the elements that he identifies as the uh, venues for dukkha in our experience, the first so-called noble truth. The list of items in that, in that uh, teaching says are to be understood. Birth, which is, we may not remember, but rumor has it that we all started with, with a big no. <laughs> Aging. No. <laughs> yeah. Sickness. And death. Pain. Sorrow. Distress. Lamentation despair, not getting what you want, getting what you don't want, losing what you cherish. Did he leave anything out? <laughs> you know, we've all, we've all been there, done that. And I think that in, in, in the sense of refuge, we're talking about refuge from from those, those elements, how do we how do we live with those things in our lives? Just the notion of refuge, you know, in, in Hawaii. Anybody been to the city of refuge in Hawaii? It's a it's like it's what well, it's a couple acres of beach mm -hmm. with a, a small stone wall, 
And if you, if you uh, committed an infraction that warranted death, something like letting your shadow fall on the king, um, you could save yourself if you made it to the city of refuge in that uh, fertile area <laughs> just up from the ocean. And, you, and it was a place of shelter, safety. The kind of places, I mean, you know, Bruce Springsteen is talking about taking refuge in a lover. We take refuge in other things, normally, generally, frequently. Where do we go when there's unpleasant experience like that? Often food, we eat, comfort food, sometimes we shop. You know, this is, this is the uh, realm of the third precept, actually. Everybody familiar with all the precepts? Anybody not? We did that last week. You did? Okay. Well, the third precept, I, my understanding of the third precept is that it's about sensual indulgence, not, not just sexual misconduct. The words in Pali, kamesu michachara, kama, is, is the word for sensuality. So it's about sensual indulgence, and how do we, how do we deal with unpleasant, that list of things, pain, sorrow, distress, you know, how do we, um, there's indulgence, sensual indulgence. We overwhelm ourselves with pleasant experience. And there are other things that, you know, uh, some people find uh, they bury themselves in work or, or drink or use some kinds of medication. Watch TV. I remember having a career bad day once. A career bad day. So I came home early. <laughs> and I was upset enough I, couldn't, I just couldn't sit still, so I went to a movie. You know, just something to, to anesthetize oneself. This is the realm of the fifth precept. I don't understand the fifth precept as a prohibition against a glass of wine on Sunday. There is sort of a, a temperance strain in the in Dharma circles. But, you know, there are times when, when um, there is such a thing as right medication, you know, in a hospice context. Uh, and, and, of course, Aren't we all really in hospice? <laughs> but these are, these are, you know, you, we respond to that list of unpleasant things with sensual indulgence and, and, and aesthetic. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> I won't say it again. <laughs> um, and so we're looking for, for some kind of safety, some kind of relief in the face of that list. So for those who think of themselves as followers of the Buddha's path, the idea would be that we would find refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So what, is, what, what does that mean? What, is it, what does it mean to find refuge in the Buddha? It's, um, it depends in some ways on, on uh, your understanding of the Buddha and what he attained. And what's important about this is whatever you think 
the Buddha attained. That becomes the inspiration for practice. That becomes the idea of what could be attained yourself. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh said, uh, because the Buddha was a human, it means countless Buddhas are possible. So it's how we understand that. And our understanding may be kind of vague. He was enlightened. And sort of, what does that mean? Do we have an idea, you know, sort of some state of bliss or something where the troubles of the world no longer bothered him? You know, it's, it reminds me of, of um, I mean, it's not articulated very well. There's no real clear vision of what the Buddha attained. It reminds me some of, um, my mother grew up in a, uh, in a uh, resort in the Catskills, or, and she became friends with the, the cooks when she was really young. And so I have a couple of cookbooks from these from the, the 20s. And, uh, you know, the instructions are, mix this together and cook until done. <laughs> really? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so you're left with these, <laughs> well. So the ability to articulate our understanding of what the Buddha accomplished, what, what awakening might mean, would make, you know, would be, would, would increase the precision of our practice, I would think. It certainly has for me. How do we understand what he attained? There are all kinds of ideas that are, he perfected uh, the paramis, he, he reached enlightenment, he was the fully awakened one. He attained nibbana. You know, people have different ideas about Nibbana. It's not articulated particularly consistently in Dharma circles anyway. How do we understand that? There are, there, there are uh, strains of transcendentalism in, in Dharma. Nibbana is some transcendent thing beyond the uh, six sense gates the five senses and the mind, but beyond what we can experience, that if we, you know, it's something otherworldly. And there are a lot of these realms in, uh, you know, the various heaven realms in the early scriptures as well. And it's, it's still taught that Nibbana is something transcendent and permanent. Well, it's not impermanent. If that, if it's not impermanent, is it even a thing? Here's, this is um, Saraputta, who was one of the, who was in the Pali, in the Theravadan tradition, was the senior disciple. I think that in, in other traditions, um, that was not always the case, but Saraputta was uh, asked, about Nibbana, and he said, Nibbana, Nibbana, it is the destruction of lust, the destruction of hatred, the destruction of delusion. This friend is called Nibbana. 
said the same thing about arhatship, which would be the state of a, a fully accomplished being. The destruction of greed, the destruction of hatred, the destruction of delusion. I think in that sense, the destruction of delusion, he's talking about the, the abandonment of uh, conceit, of this, the sense of I am. So there's just the experience unfolding without a self present in it. Nibbana. The, the uh, Sutta Napata has a really interesting section uh, that I've, it's actually my favorite, one of my favorites in the canon, where the Buddha talks about uh, um, why he left the palace. Lee Brasington points out that there's no place in the, in the Pali scriptures where the three, the heavenly messengers appear uh, to Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha to be. Um, it's part of later traditions. So why did the Buddha leave? He said, you know, I see fear results from resorting to violence. This, I like this because it's so personal. There are not as many personal places in the, in the scriptures. Just look at how people quarrel and fight. Duh. <laughs> Let me tell you now of the kind of dismay and terror I felt seeing people struggling like fish writhing in shallow water with enmity against one another. I became afraid. At one time I'd wanted to find some place where I could take shelter, but I never saw such a place. There's nothing in this world that is solid at base and not a part of it is changeless. I'd seen them all trapped in mutual conflict, and that is why I had felt so repelled. But then I noticed something buried deep in their hearts. It was, I could just make it out, a dart, a barb. It's a barb that makes its victims run all over the place. We're all victims. <laughs> but once it's been pulled out, all that running is finished, and so is the exhaustion that comes with it. Now, what's interesting about that, I've been thinking about that recently, and, you know, he's talking about the, the, the uh, about craving, about tanha, about that, the, the, the compelling impulses for, to have our experience pleasant, to survive and become something in the future, to get rid of all the unpleasant stuff that shows up. And that's the barb he's talking about. And the question, of course, for us, can we perceive that experience subjectively? How is that felt subjectively? It's always present. Anytime you look, you can find yourself navigating towards pleasantness, trying to plot to be something somewhere, sometime in the future. And to make the unpl- always just take you know my experience anyway, and it's it's broad based. It's the, the whole being is looking for that refuge in the Buddha. The Buddha for us is just an idea. There's nobody sitting here who's you know 
No, buddy, <laughs> sitting here. So how do so? But refuge in the Buddha is is, is the, the the refuge in the idea that liberation is possible. Just that it's possible. The Buddha said, "I wouldn't ask you to practice if it weren't possible." But because it's possible, I urge you to practice. You can make a, make a distinction between that may or may not be useful or may or may not be, well, I don't know, make a distinction between enlightenment and liberation, between awakening and liberation. Awakening would be the an enlightenment would be the discovery of just what the task is. You are awake to the task, awake to the, to the project, awake to what we have to do to cultivate the Eightfold Path. What else is there to do? Once that, once that awakening happens, then you know, the course is, is pretty clear, but that's not the same as liberation when the process is completed and you've uprooted that tanha, pulled out that barb, no longer respond to the compulsions that it and its of it and its products. Another place where the the Buddha describes and this is in, in the Sutta Napada again, where the Buddha describes the qualities of a sage. Just um, what about the perfect man, he's asked. And he says, it would be a man who is calmed, who's extinguished all his cravings before the time his body disintegrates into nothing, who has no concern with how things began or with how they will end, and no fixation with what happens in between. Such a man has no preferences. He has no anger, no fear, no pride. Nothing disturbs his composure and nothing gives him cause for regret. He is the wise man who is restrained in speech. He has no longing for the future and no grief for the past. There are no views or opinions that lead him. He can see detachment from the entangled world of sense impressions. He does not conceal anything, and there is nothing he holds on to. Without acquisitiveness or envy, he remains unobtrusive. He has no disdain or insult for anyone. He's not a man who's full of himself or a man who's addicted to pleasure. He is a man who is gentle and alert, with no blind faith. He shows no aversion to anything. And he goes on. It's a description of So the Buddha, refuge in the Buddha is relief in the notion that there is that, that is a possibility. How do we how do we get there? Well, refuge in the Dharma. Refuge in the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, would be 
the refuge, the relief, the, the, the freedom that comes from knowing that there is a path, a map, instructions, a recipe. On the other hand, <laughs> you know, how, how, <laughs> how do you know what, what the recipe is? You know, the, I, I think of the, the Buddha's teachings as it comes, has come down to a sort of like the, the ending, end product of a 2,500-year game of telephone. And the Buddha, the Buddha knew this too. He he anticipated this. You know, there's um, in the the sutta on the peg. The Buddha talks about uh, he he uses a metaphor of a drum that that uh, used to be so big and resonant that you could hit it and it would be heard for leagues. What's a league? <laughs> I, I don't know. But it was a bunch of leagues. And then, of course, it, it was wood, and so it uh, would dry and crack, and then it would vibrate, so they'd take a little wooden peg and hit it in there and, to keep the vibration down. And after a while, the drum became nothing but pegs, and you couldn't hear it in the next room. So the Buddha says, in that same way, in the course of the future, there will be monks who won't listen when the discourses of the Tathagata, deep, deep in their meaning, transcendent and connected with emptiness, when those are being recited. They won't lend an ear, won't set their hearts on knowing them, won't regard these teachings as worth grasping or mastering, but they will listen when discourses that are literary works, the works of poets, elegant in sound, elegant in rhetoric, the work of outsiders, the work of disciples, when those words are recited. They will lend an ear and set their hearts on knowing them, they will regard these teachings as worth grasping and mastering. In this way, the disappearance of the discourses that are the words of the Tathagata will come about. So how do we tell just what the teachings of the Buddha might be? There's, there are plenty of interpretations of even the earliest texts. And the, the earliest text contains some um, conflicting notions as well. There's some st- different strategies to figuring it out. Um, Bhikkhu Analyo, who may be the most notable and striking Buddhist scholar on the planet at the time, I tried to persuade him to come and do a, uh, be a part of a retreat for that I was putting on and uh, asked him I wanted to do the subject would be the three baskets, the, the suttas, the vinaya, and the, the uh, abhidhamma. And he was not interested because he said, I don't pay attention to anything post-Ashoka. Ashoka was the king a century or two after the Buddha. So, so he doesn't even pay attention to anything later than that. That's sort of one, one way of doing it. Stephen Batchelor had a slightly different, different approach, which I kind of like. He, t- he takes a look at the, the uh, contents of the Pali canon, the, the doctrinal contents, and looks at what was ambient in the culture at the time, and says, you know, what's in here that isn't out there? So, you know, there are some interesting there are some uh, the the uh, 
the kinds of things that were ambient, you know, the, the first four precepts were also the first, were the four vows that the Jains took. And they were understood as basic morality at the time. There was, there was plenty of, of concentration practice at the time. And many people, you know, the Buddha before his awakening reportedly had mastered all of, all of the, the jhana absorptions. Um, but each time he opened his eyes, he was, he was back here. <laughs> but mindfulness meditation was not in the mix at that time. Mindfulness practice, which you know, is bringing our attention to the, not just to the data at each of the sense doors, but also to the, um, uh, what's the word, the, uh, how they all work together. You know, the, the arising experience that we have um, of, of pleasantness and unpleasantness and of, uh, of our suffering, particularly. So it's sort of a middle path between the granular and the global. It's not either one. It's recognizing our suffering being attentive to that, making those things the object of our attention. We can think about our experience a lot, but we usually don't just direct our attention to it, except when we're sitting, and, and off the cushion increasingly. So, the, so mindfulness practice was, was uh, something that he, that he added to the mix. And his understanding of um, his teachings, his presentation of the, f- the four truths and dependent origination. Dependent origination particularly because as, as the most radical of the teachings because he, his teaching was that there are no things that are not dependently arisen. All things subject to arising are subject to passing away. All experience is, is impermanent. There aren't essences anywhere. Even though what we grab at is an essence, we think we'll get something when we, when we reach, when we, when, we, when we grasp. But emptiness is, is really, in my, I, I don't know, it's, it's pretty much a Buddhist uh, notion. A dependently, the notion of dependent origination and emptiness, anatta, and the four truths and the path, the pathway. He emphasized behavior because at the time, morality consisted of adhering to the um, the rules that were prescribed for your caste. And, and most of social life was, was very ritualistically uh, carried out. But the Buddha, the Buddha um, 
sort of flipped the meaning of all that. He said, I'm concerned about intention. Karma is intention. Right speech, right action, right livelihood are rooted in right intention. You know, you, it's not so much what you do. I mean, should the doctor who, who performed surgery on, on uh, Joan Rivers, should he stop giving up surgery because he could hurt people? Or the, the doctor in the East Bay, who, that thing that happened earlier this year that was so sad with the young girl who went in for a tonsillectomy, and, you know, should we just not, you know, the rule isn't not to harm. It's not to intend harm. You know, it's intention. The first precept is panatipata, to strike at, not to intend harm. So the Buddha emphasized behavior and made it personal. He also, you know, for me, there's one of the, one of the big um, koans that is that has been guiding me for some time was his his teaching that. He said, uh, I teach a dharma that does not contend with anyone. The follower, a follower of the dharma does not dispute with anyone. I don't dispute with anyone. The follower of the dharma uses the language current at the time but without adhering to it. The language, the cosmology, the understanding, but without adhering to it. What does it mean to not contend with any time you find yourself in contention? Not the Dharma. No. You do have a self. I don't have a self. Yes, I do. No, you don't. <laughs> not the Dharma. <laughs> so it's, it's just a great, uh, a great uh, instruction great tool, great guide to find that place in ourselves when we find ourselves <laughs> what is it, next Tuesday? When we find ourselves anticipating the condition of the Senate next Tuesday. So, I, but there is refuge in the Dharma that does not contend. Can we find refuge in the Dharma that does not contend? So refuge in the Dharma, refuge in the teachings. How do we understand the teachings? There are other understandings. I'm just sharing mine, and per perhaps it's, it's helpful. And then refuge in the Sangha. Well, that's interesting. That's interesting, too. What is the Sangha? You know, at the time of the Buddha, the Sangha was considered the collection of arhats, the fully awakened beings. Those were the, that was the Sangha. And then, of course, um, it, it, it sort of became the community of monastics. And that's still, still present in many places. I, at at uh, Vajrapani, a Tibetan monastery up in uh, Santa Cruz Mountains, if 
you go up, up to the meal line, there's a sign right next to the meal. Out of courtesy, we, so, we serve sangha first. And what they mean is, mostly the nuns or any, any monastics there, are, are, we serve sangha first. So sangha would be, in that understanding, just the collection of monastics. But we've expanded that to include the community of, well, people who come to study the Dharma and sit and watch Groundhog Day again and again. <laughs> I always thought that was funny because we, we did watch it again and again, didn't we? <clears throat> But it's, it's, uh, it's even more than just the community of those of us who come together in a room like this. It's sort of a culture of awakening. It includes the books. It didn't used to be so many books. There was a time when there weren't any. You know, you try to go find a book, you know, Alan Watts, D.T. Suzuki. Hurry up. <laughs> that was it. Was that it? Ramdas, yeah, but but I mean now you know they the, they're falling off the shelves. They can't. You know, it's the culture. It includes, you know, it includes the artifacts, the internet. My wife has a friend who lives in the Australia near the Australian outback, who spends her time listening to Sylvia and and Gill, and you know. So it's a culture of awakening, and it's not a trivial culture, either. There's a there's a, a you know famous um, scene in the canon where where Ananda and the Buddha are looking out over the I don't know field of assembled monks and nuns, and Ananda says to the Buddha, "This stuff is pretty. This sangha is pretty. It must be half the. It's pretty important. It must be half the holy life." And the Buddha says, "Don't say that, Ananda." It's, all of the holy life. And it's all of the holy life because he says, it, it, you know, and it, I mean, it really is important. He, it's, it, it is the, the place in which, it's the venue in which one cultivates the, uh, the noble truths, the Eightfold Path. Here's a... Um, a particular uh, sutta that I like, where the Buddha is, comes out of his uh, hut, and there are, there are his um, monks. Oh no, I'm not going to find. There we go. He comes out and he says, "What are you guys talking about?" And they tell him, and I'm, I'll I'll read his response. But he just reiterates the, to the topics of conversation. He said, you know, it isn't right, monks, that sons of good families on having gone forth out of faith from home to the homeless life should get engaged in such topics of conversation as kings and ministers of state, robbers, is that the 1%? <laughs> well, ministers and kings of state we get, right? No, I get the robbers. 
yeah, we get the robbers. Armies. ISIS and alarms, Ebola, mm -hmm. battles, oh my gosh, food and drink. Mm -hmm. It's the dining section of the Times. <laughs> <laughs> Clothing, that's the, uh, <laughs> that's the style section of the Times. Furniture, oh, it's the home section. Garlands and scents. It's the advertising. <laughs> oh, how about relatives? These are topics of conversation not suitable for the Sangha. Vehicles. Yeah. Villages, towns, city, the countryside. That's sort of like standing, walking, sitting, and lying down, which means all the time. This is everywhere, any place. Women and heroes, men and heroes, or um, men and blackguards. The gossip of the street and the well. <coughs> Tales of the dead. It's the obituary section. <laughs> Tales of diversity, the creation of the world and of the sea, is that the Big Bang, evolution, talk on whether things exist or not. These are, these are the topics of conversation not suitable for the Sangha. Now that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do them, and the Buddha is really clear as well that he has many lay followers who live a life according to his teaching, <coughs> even enjoying sense pleasures, but as stream enterers, independent in the teacher's dispensation. These are the topics, the proper topics of conversation that he urges. Now I'm, okay. Talks on modesty, on contentment, on seclusion, and that doesn't have to be, you know, going up to a mountain in the Himalayas. It can be metaphorical. On non-entanglement, on arousing persistence, on virtue, on concentration, on wisdom, on release, and on the knowledge and vision of release. These are topics, you know, it's not so much that we shouldn't talk about one set of things and should talk about another, but we should recognize what kinds of attention support our growth towards liberation. These are the ten topics of conversation. If you were to engage repeatedly in these ten topics of conversation, you would outshine even the sun and moon, so mighty and powerful. On the night of the Buddha's death, his, the people who were hanging around went into did they, tent? Uh, whatever. They got together, maybe sitting around the fire, and they, <coughs> and they uh, 
talked Dharma. They talked about the Dharma. This is the stuff they talked about. So it's interesting. So it's not so much that we shouldn't, it's just for us to be aware. But Dharma, as all of the holy life, how about this? This comes out of uh, the Majjhima. He says, if one can find a worthy friend, a virtuous, steadfast companion, then overcome all threats of danger and walk with him content and mindful. But if one finds no worthy friend, no virtuous, steadfast companion, then as a king leaves his conquered realm, walk like a Tusker elephant in the woods alone. Better it is to walk alone. There is no companionship with fools. Walk alone and do no evil at ease like a Tusker elephant in the woods. So is Sangha all the holy life, or is it It's a middle path? And then, of course, in our experience, there are sanghas and there are sanghas. And we all know about the kinds of problems that sanghas can encounter. In the end, you know, each of us has to depend on our own ability to navigate this life and to find our way to a teacher or through teachers, through sanghas, to the teaching and to the liberation. What we think we're doing reflects our understanding of the Buddha as a refuge. It sets a goal and a focus for our practice. You know, how, how um, seriously we're going to practice depend on how seriously we take up the Dharma and how well we can articulate it. For me, the ability to articulate these these understandings is really important because without articulation, it's like those recipes. You know, at least we want to know how long, and should the oven be hot? And you got anything more precise than that? You know, enlightenment's over there. You know, go take a look. Let go, and, and let go and be free. Right, and that's you know would be a little bit more detail would be helpful. And then, you know, refuge in the Sangha. Um, how, do we, how do we live our lives? Well, there's no real, there's no manual that comes with us. You know, and there's no path if we aren't creating it. The path isn't something we walk, it's something we create with our behavior. You know, and how we, how we individually work with this. Jason Siff, who you know, says, uh, any way you can. Akinjana Weber says, any trick in the book. You know, free yourself. So let's... Uh, take a minute or two and see if there are questions or comments or thoughts or complaints or... Please. I have a really stupid question. Oh, okay. When you say take refuge in the Dharma, uh -huh. my first thought is, what is the Dharma? 
And uh, yeah. I, mean, I have been, you know, meditating for a lot of years. Uh-huh. What, didn't I raise that question at the beginning? I mean, when I came to the Dharma, what is the Dharma? There's a lot of understanding. There's a lot. It's it comes to us uh, with a lot of noise. The Buddha's interest, as I understand it, was in suffering and the end of suffering. The the kind of um, dissatisfaction that we find in life, and the Dharma is his his teaching of. Uh, how to live without it, how to live without that. And so the program is pretty direct. It's the Eightfold Path in the context of the Four Truths. So the Eightfold Path are not eight separate folds, you know, that you can go off to the corner with one. It's like, I've used the basketball metaphor, I think, before. It's a unity, you know, just like a basketball is a unity. You can't just go play with the brown. You know, or with the compressed air, you got the whole thing. And the Eightfold Path is a whole path. So the meditation element is one part. It's the part of learning how to pay attention. And then knowing what you're seeing when you're paying attention, well, that has to do with our understanding, right view, from which our intentions come. Our intentions are all rooted in our understanding. So if our understanding is diluted, then the results of our intention are going to surprise us and not be satisfying. (laughs) And so with right intention we get speech, action, and livelihood in accordance with the whole project of abandoning tanha. That's what we want to do. When we, you know, that barb. The Dharma is the teachings on how to extract that barb. First, how to identify it. Because if you can identify it subjectively, knowing about it is helpful. Knowing about anicca is helpful, impermanence. Knowing about impermanence is helpful. But embodying that understanding is not the same thing as knowing about it. I know about impermanence, but oh my gosh, I just broke my favorite mug. Oh no. <laughs> you know? um, so it's the, the teaching of how to, how to, so if we, if we, look for that subjectively, to embody that, to find where in our experience, what is he talking about with that barb? It is a deep physical sensation. And it relaxes when you notice it. So if you can notice it, it's like any muscle tension. And, and he would, his, so the Dharma would be his instructions for living without, without that. That's my understanding, anyway, and I, my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> Any, anyone else? Please. I understand the Dharma as understanding the way things are and not being in contention mm-hmm. with it. Mm-hmm. Sure. And everything that, that you're talking about is has to do with trying to arrive at Stripping away all of the all of the things that get in the way of seeing clearly. Uh huh. The Buddha says in the Udana, however you conceive things, they are other than that. That's right. 
<laughs> That's why it's so hard to put words to it. <laughs> well, you know, putting words to it is interesting. All our experience is ineffable. There's nothing more ineffable than the taste of a banana. You can't, you can't communicate the taste of a banana or a jackfruit. If you haven't eaten a jackfruit, you know, try to go and figure out what it tastes like by reading a, a description in Wikipedia or something. <laughs> Just not going to happen. All our experience is ineffable. What we want to do is to recognize the distinction between our, or to make a distinction between our sensory experience and our conceptual experience. So if you look at this and see a pen, you're actually thinking pen while you see colors and shape. So it's all, it's all words are words, and, experience, and sensual experience is sensual experience. And the conglomeration, I need to come up, I need to figure out what that word is. It's the, the sum total of you know, it's, a, it's, it's not just attention at the sense doors, but it's also the awareness of how they all come together as one unified experience. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I had a question and a comment. Um, comment, you, you, all of his talk about how you know you shouldn't like you can eat the banana but you can't say that was a good banana because then you'd be talking about food or, um, or you know, he didn't say you can't or you shouldn't he just said that those are not topics that will lead to awakening yeah so so it almost seems that I felt I felt more so this way when I was 20 that you know if you really want to be awakened, you just you almost have to not be human, um, and you you have to just give up so much. Mm. Now maybe maybe it's worth it, maybe it's worth it, but I don't know if it's worth it. I've seen um, I've seen a Dharma teacher sit there and say, you know, we don't have enough fun in our lives. We have to dance. We have to do this. We have to do that, and it's like. You know, it's just, it's just a big question, isn't it? Well, it's not, a, it's, it's not a question to me about whether it's possible or whether it's human. It certainly is possible and it's certainly human. You can choose how to live yourself and you can choose to have fun and play. Um, you, can, you can choose all those things. And he's not saying you should or shouldn't. He's saying if you want to live dukkha-free, Give you know, yeah. it's going to take a little work. This is this is a deep issue because dukkha is really deeply embedded in our own organism's uh, patterns. It's built into the DNA survival. I want to be be something in the future. I want to become something in the future. I want my experience to be pleasant. I want the unpleasant stuff gone. Tanha. It's. It's, you can feel it physically in everything. But, yeah, but in a way the ultimate question is, is in the end, how do you want to live your life? Do you, yeah. And, 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 do you, and, and which way would make you happier? Oh, you that's, know, that's, that's sort of the ultimate question. That's the ultimate question, and the ultimate answer uh, w will come out of what kind of understanding? 
how would you know whether you're, how would you understand, how would you recognize delusion? Greed, hatred, and delusion. When Ajahn Pasana was asked, my understanding is he said, well, you'll know because you're suffering. But I don't think we even recognize dukkha. A lot of the time, it's pretty subtle. It's sort of like, who wrote that book in, in the 60s or 70s? It's been down so long, it looks like up to me. Yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, so, so, you know, do we have any objective markers or metaphysical correlates for dukkha? And, and one that seems to me... Uh, pretty big is complaints. If we have any complaints of any kind, justified, unjustified. I mean, the world is the way it is. The universe is. Things are as they are. And if we are unhappy with some of it, well, that's our unhappiness. You know, if we have a complaint about the world, we're just projecting our dissatisfaction out there on it. So it's a, there's a marker for delusion. And, then, and, and those kind of complaints always result in contention at some point. Yeah. Yeah, and then I also had a question, which was, so did the Buddha actually write suttas or whatever? I don't know anything about Oh, my the, gosh, the, I should... That, you know, the whole way, or is it like the apostles years, where they... Right? Oh, just, you know, I mean, how yes. is it all set Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Okay. Famous. So this, I, this is what I consider sort of community-level scholarship. Mm-hmm. You know, when the Buddha, at, at, the, at the time of the Buddha, the culture was um, basically uh, rooted in the memorized texts of the Vedas. People memorized because they didn't trust anything valuable to writing. You write on a palm leaf and the termites eat it, you know. So, the, the story goes that at the, and, and the Buddha taught for 45 years. It's not, I mean, Jesus was out there for three, you know, um, and nobody wrote anything down for, what, 175 years, something like that. The Buddha taught for 45 years, and within in three months after his death, the, all of the arhats, all of the fully awakened beings got together, the Sangha, and they they had a council which lasted some time and they all listened to Ananda recounting uh, the, the teachings that he'd been present for and, they, they, and there was a recitation of the rules, the monastic rules, and groups of monks took these on and memorized them and passed them on through memory and they became written down some four to five hundred years later is my understanding. And that's, you know, so, and, and there, it's like the game of telephone. Sometimes there's been, but the signal is really strong. The signal is strong. Uh, suffering and the end of suffering. The noble truths is about that. Dependent origination, about that. There's a lot of scattered stuff um, which may reflect the language and culture of the time which he addressed but without adhering to. And I think our oldest records, the oldest texts we have are from about the 8th century or 9th century. Okay. Uh, there's, but, but that's generally 
Um, people relied on their memory and were much better with it. My understanding is there was a council that in last century, um, the second half of the last century, for some reason I think 1976, but I could be wrong, and at that time there were two monks who were able to recite the entire Pali Canon. So it's possible to do. It's a bookshelf about like this. It's 45 years, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of text. I, I, can't, rem I can't memorize. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is that. So I hope that's helpful. Yeah. Any last things? I want to thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.